my dear brethren and sisters, in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have before us this morning two very wonderful, informative and instructive parables in the first 14 verses of Luke chapter 18. I believe that we should understand these parables as we consider them this morning from the point of view that the Lord was encouraging us to pray and encouraging us in the spirit and disposition which we should have for prayer. And that is in spite of the fact that the first of these parables was directed to the disciples, whereas the second was directed to the Pharisees in the hearing of the disciples. First of all, I believe that the words of these two parables will have greater weight upon our minds if we consider the context in which they are recorded in Luke's Gospel. We might ask ourselves, why should these two parables be set where we find them? They might well have occurred anywhere in Luke's Gospel, but they don't. We find them here in chapter 18 and verses 1 to 14. We believe that the reason for that is in the general context of Luke chapter 17 and 18. You see, when we go back to chapter 17, we, in a sense, have the beginning of a new section where we find the Lord confronted by the Pharisees. They come to him and they ask, when will the kingdom of God come? And his reply was, it's not much good you asking when the kingdom of God is going to come when you can't even recognise God's royal majesty in your presence. And having answered the Pharisees in that way, we then find in the next verse, verse 22, the Lord turns to the disciples and he says, look, the day is coming when you are going to long to see the Son of Man. The day is coming when you will not see the Son of Man on the earth. What are you going to do then? But then it goes on to speak of conditions that would develop in the world and which would affect the ecclesias after there is no longer a day of the Lord in the earth. He speaks of the days of Noah. He speaks of the days of Lot. And he sees those things prophetically being reenacted at the epoch of his second coming. There is a special short blunt warning in verse 32, remember Lot's wife. And so then we ask ourselves, what is the Lord going to teach us concerning our hope of remaining firmly attached to the Father and the Son during the time when the Lord is no longer seen on the earth and when these terrible, fearful conditions develop toward the time of the end? And the answer is found in chapter 18 and verse 1, that men ought always to pray and not to faint. And that is the context in which these two wonderful and very informative and glorious parables are to be found. And so therefore we will not see the Son of Man during his absence from the earth. But not only that, during his absence conditions for God's people will become more and more difficult as evil multiplies upon the earth. And so therefore those who would be numbered among the faithful would be dependent upon the power of prayer to maintain their union and their harmony with their Father in the heavens. And it is against that background that we find these two parables dramatically introduced into Luke's context. In verse 1 of chapter 18, it begins with the words that he spake a parable unto them. But the phrase that he spake is more correctly translated as in the emphatic dialogue, where it renders the phrase and he also spoke a parable to them. 
In other words, the parable that we find here now in the first part of Luke chapter 18 provided a sequel to the prophetic words previously uttered in chapter 17. In other words, these two parables were in effect a continuation of what had been said in chapter 17. And especially, let us note in chapter 17, in verses 33 to 37, or especially 36 anyway, verses 33 to 36, the contrast there between those who forget God and those who do not. And so in this very beautiful parable of the persistent widow in Luke chapter 18, we learn that the greatest assurance that we can have that we do not forget God, that we are not found at the time of Christ's coming enmeshed with a world rather than the body of Christ, is the contemplation of the power of prayer. And in Luke chapter 18, I believe the Lord is gloriously illustrating to us that we pray to a God whom we know exists. And so therefore we won't forget him and be found numbered among those unfortunate of verse 33 and 36 of chapter 17. We pray to a God whom we know exists and with whom we desire to remain in close contact and harmony. And so therefore, genuine, continuous, constant prayer is the great means that Yahweh has provided that we might always remain aware of the living reality of the God whom we worship and of the living reality of our needs for which he alone can provide. And so we have those words in verse 1 that men ought always to pray. The word always is a word which means constantly, at all times. And therefore it reflects a disposition in an individual who is constantly aware of his needs, who is constantly aware of his dependence upon the Father. And that is brought out in chapter 17 and verse 32. Remember Lot's wife. It is brought out in chapter 18 and verse 13. God be merciful to me, a sinner. And that is why the Lord says that men ought constantly, at all times, to pray. And then he adds, and not to faint, which is a word that means to turn out to be a coward or to lose one's courage. And of that particular word, Bullinger says, but the meaning of that word is to be especially appreciated in view of trial or difficulty or from moral weakness. In other words, we should not allow ourselves to faint or to turn out to be spiritual cowards or to lose our courage by letting the pressures of life and the inherent weaknesses of the nature that we bear destroy the power of the truth within us. We must not permit that to happen, especially, brethren and sisters, against the background of the epoch of history in which we live, to which the Lord has just referred in the prior chapter, chapter 17. And this beautiful parable about the persistent widow is there before us to point out to us that our defence against an evil, godless environment and against the inherent weaknesses of our own flesh is 
constant, regular communion with the Father in prayer. And so we learn from the parable that Yahweh becomes not only our Father, but as pointed out in many other parts of the word, through prayer and close communion with our God, he becomes not only our Father, but our friend, our companion, our helper, our comforter, our strengthener, and the one whose power in his word will influence our thoughts and our actions. You know, there's a very beautiful statement in the book of Proverbs. In Proverbs 13 and verse 20, which says, He that walketh with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. And as we contemplate that parable, he that walketh with wise men shall be wise, we can remember that there is none wiser than Yahweh. So therefore he should be our constant companion, day and night, and we should desire in the spirit of that proverb to walk in close and intimate association with him. And so the parable speaks of the plight of a widow and an unjust judge. And widowhood was a symbol used in the scriptures to describe God's people during a period when Yahweh does not appear to be visibly favouring them. You'll find that in such passages as Isaiah 54 and verse 4 and Lamentations verse, chapter 1 and verse 1, just to mention a couple of passages. The term is used to describe Yahweh's people <coughs> under those conditions when he does not appear to be visibly favouring them. And so therefore, needless to say, the widow in the parable typifies the ecclesia. And when it does not appear outwardly or visibly that Yahweh is favouring his people, at that time, the ecclesia of God appears to be helpless, appears to be defenceless and without resources. But what appears to be the case outwardly is not necessarily the true situation. And very, very often, especially now at the time of the end, we may see very, very readily that the ecclesia may enter a period of development in a final preparation for the kingdom where Yahweh is trying them and putting their faith to the test. And it may appear that their prayers are not heard for the return of Christ, for the forgiveness of their sins, for the removal of the burden, for the trials that beset them. But that is not necessarily so, as the parable so eloquently shows. And of course, a widow in the days of the Lord Jesus Christ and in times of old was the most pitiable figure in Eastern countries. They often suffered very harsh injustices. They had very little sustenance, especially if they were advanced in years. There were no old age pensions or national welfare items or things of that nature. And Israel had neglected the law in regard to these matters. And so the widow is set forth in the parable as being oppressed and harried by an unbelieving world, typified by the unjust judge of whom it says that he feared neither God nor man. And therefore the widow, the ecclesia of the living God, appears to be suffering in a way for which there will be no relief. But the main purpose of the parable is to remind the faithful 
that there is always hope, even in such an extreme situation as described in this parable. There is always hope for the people of God so long as they maintain their faith and their confidence in Yahweh and so long as they continue to fervently express that conviction in prayer and communion with their God. And the lesson of the parable is though that we must be consistent and we must be persistent. And so the reaction of the woman and the reaction of the judge is described. The woman will not give in, but the judge keeps turning her away. The woman keeps coming back. The judge continues to refuse. But in the end, we find that the judge is broken down. In verse 5 of the parable it says, Yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. But you know the phrase is more explicit than that. And the judge finally comes to an understanding that that widow is never going to give up. Because the phrase rendered there, left by her continual coming, really means left by her continual coming unto the end. And the judge became gradually aware of the fact that this woman was so persistent there was nothing that would stop her. She would not cease her petitioning and she could not be made to cease. She would continue undiscouraged, relentlessly, until the end. In other words, until her hopes and her aspirations became a reality. And the judge is depicted here as one who does not want to have, in the end, a violent showdown with a woman. The word rendered as weary me, lest she weary me, is the same word that Paul uses in the first of Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 27, where in some versions it is rendered as buffet. And the word means to strike under the eyes and hence to beat the face black and blue. So in other words, in the extremity or the extreme language of the parable, the metaphor is given here by the Lord Jesus Christ to show that this widow, who typifies the ecclesia, would continue to fight the warfare of faith, even if it meant, in a spiritual sense, a violent defence of that which she sought so ardently and so earnestly. And so therefore, perhaps the phrase is better rendered here, lest she wear me out. That's the very gentlest way in which that phrase can be translated because of the meaning of the word, lest she wear me out. And here we have set before us the glorious teaching of the Son of God. And he is showing us, brethren and sisters, that if a man so unprincipled as this unjust judge would eventually give in to the constant pleading of one such as this widow, then how much more will Yahweh, who loves his children, eventually satisfy all the needs of his people and relieve them of their burdens and their suffering and justify and vindicate them before all the world. And it is my earnest belief, brethren and sisters, that it was that spirit and that disposition that kept the Lord Jesus Christ going through his life. We know that he was the Word made flesh. We know all of that. We know that he was a perfect manifestation of the Father's character. 
But we know that he succeeded because he ever performed the will of his Father and subjected the flesh to the will of God. We know that. But he had to be a man with a disposition because he was man. He was of our nature, identical to the same material of which we are made. He was a representative not only of the Father, but of Adam's race. And it was that spirit and that disposition that took him through life, knowing and being aware that in spite of the unprincipled treatment that he received at the hands of men, the difficulty in living the truth, that if he maintained his constancy, if he maintained his persistence in his worship of Yahweh, that the Father loves his children and must eventually justify those who remain faithful. And so in verse 7, the Lord having spoken in verse 6, hear what the unjust judge says, says, And shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? And that's perhaps a rather difficult expression to accept at times, when things are not going right in our life, there are problems which it seems will never disappear. We pray fiercely, we pray ardently, we pray concertedly, but the problems remain. Do we feel that the Father is ignoring us? That would be very unwise if we are faithfully striving to walk in the way of the truth. You know what the Father is doing? According to the principles of this glorious parable, the Father is storing up those prayers and eventually it will be prayers of that nature and a constant, persevering attitude toward the truth that will get that suffering man or that suffering woman into the kingdom when the Lord comes. If our trials are not removed, if our problems are not taken away from us and lifted from our shoulders, it is because the Father knows a good reason why they should stay there. It is in the Father's power and the Father's will to remove any trial in an instant. And he will do it that way when the time comes, as the parable shows. But Yahweh, our Heavenly Father, permits suffering to come upon his servants long after they have begun to pray for deliverance. And he does that because we need to be proved under trial and because prayer is a vital ingredient in the development of the Christ character. We cannot develop the character of Christ without effective, effectual, fervent prayer. And so, instead of feeling hard done by when the trials come upon us, Peter says in his first epistle that we should rejoice in trials because we see and observe through the mind of the Spirit that the Father has permitted those trials to come upon us for our own good. We need those trials when they come to us. And so therefore, prayers from the faithful, although they appear to remain unanswered, are not those prayers are stored away in the mind of the Father and he remembers them all and in his own good time those prayers will be answered and relief will come to the suffering, persecuted, oppressed 
thanks to Almighty God. And the Lord puts it there ever so eloquently in verse 7. Shall not God avenge his own elect? Of course he certainly will. But in the meantime, the characters of the saints are being developed. And at the same time, another attribute of the Father's character is being exercised. While the character of the saints is being developed, he is exhibiting toward the world that character of long-suffering, giving the world the opportunity to repent and to change their ways and to recognise the truth of God's word. And so in verse 8 the Lord says in this parable, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. He will avenge them speedily. In other words, God will bear long with faithless humanity, certainly, as we've seen from the previous verse. But when his judgments do come, they will be swift and terrible. And so it is important to observe here that the Lord did not say that God's judgments would come soon. He says they would come suddenly. And the word means with quickness. The diagram, literal text renders it, he will do the justice for them in an instant. And so that relief will come and it will come in the most incredible way. But as we contemplate that, brethren and sisters, it is very important to examine carefully the final words in that verse which we quote so often. But when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find the faith on the earth? And I do believe, brethren and sisters, that we have got to understand that last part of verse 8 in the light of what he has taught us in chapter 17. The day will come when you will no longer see the Lord Jesus Christ on the earth. What are you going to do then? There's going to be a reenactment of the days of Noah. Remember what that was like, brethren. What are you going to do then? We are going to pass through a period of time before the Lord's coming when we're going to relive the days of Lot of Sodom and Gomorrah. What are you going to do then? The answer is men ought always to pray and not to faint. And so therefore we have this point made here in verse 8. Shall he find the faith on the earth? And the Lord Jesus Christ there, brethren and sisters, is not just simply speaking about the faith as a knowledge of the Birmingham Amended Statement of Faith. He is speaking about the faith which gives power to prayer because that's the context in which those words are set down. The parable dealing with prayer. He is speaking about a faith that is so real and so living that it draws men and women into a close harmony and an intimacy with the God whom they claim to worship. When he says, shall he find the faith on the earth, he is speaking of a class of man and woman whose knowledge, whose desire is simply to walk in harmony with their God to reject an evil and apostate and a godless world. He is speaking of a class of men and women who not simply know the truth, but desire to walk diligently in the way of the truth. And we have the example back in chapter 17 and verse 32. Remember Lot's wife. You see, 
she did not have the faith. She knew the truth. And had it been in print in that time, she would no doubt have known the Birmingham Amended Statement of Faith. But she was a double-minded woman. She wanted the best of both worlds. She wanted that which Yahweh had to offer, but she wanted what the world had to offer as well. And the challenge of that statement at the end of verse 8 is, when the Lord comes, how many Christadelphians is he going to find in that condition? So that we cannot simply answer that by saying, well, I've got the faith because I understand the statement of faith and I'm a member of a Christadelphian ecclesia and there's my name on the roll. That's not the answer to that question. The answer to that question, as we have seen, is more explicit and more involved and far more demanding than that. And so as far as we are concerned, in this present evil age, we live at a time when there is a great temptation to reach out and to grasp those opportunities which the world offers us for the accumulation and the building up of worldly possessions and wealth in contrast to the destitute widow of this parable who was more concerned with building up treasure in heaven. And the Lord's statement here in verse 8 implies that at the time of the end, the ecclesia would be existing in extremely difficult times. Times that would not be conducive to a living manifestation of the faith. And so the Lord requires in us a faith that is constant, a faith that is consistent, a faith that is, in, that is persistent, and a faith that remains unchanging in the face of a changing world. And so in that verse, the Lord expressed his great fear that at the epoch of his return, the disposition described in verse 1 of this parable and is embodied in the persistent widow would be lacking in his disciples, thus having caused them to lose their defence against their ungodly environment and the weakness of their own flesh, and thus causing them to be unprepared for the Lord's return. And more than that, brethren and sisters, the Lord in this parable is telling us that he anticipated that the, at the epoch of his return there would be a widespread failure to appreciate the power and the efficacy, the saving power of prayer. And so having delivered that parable, having delivered that parable, we now find in verse 9 that he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves. So now he turns to the Pharisees. And whilst the first parable has stressed the need for perseverance and constancy in prayer, we find that the second of these two parables emphasises the need for perseverance and constancy to be matched with humility and self-abasement. And therefore, the two parables are closely linked together. When we look at these two men in this parable, one a Pharisee, one a publican, they are set before us as the means by which we might be saved or the means by which we might fail to be saved. Because the question here in the second parable is not merely a matter of two contrasting prayers. It's much more profound and important than that. 
as you will see from verse 14, the question is not simply one good prayer and one bad prayer. The question is justification with God. It's that serious. And the Lord tells us in this parable that one of these men will be justified. That speaks of redemption. One will be saved. The other will be rejected. And that is how important this matter is. So in other words, the second parable teach us, teaches us that prayer is not powerful unless it is proper. The first parable has taught the need for persistent, consistent dedication to seek in close harmony and unity with our Creator. But the second reminds us of this fact, that prayer is not powerful unless it is proper. And so the Lord uses a Pharisee. And he couldn't have chosen a better example, because if there was one thing that the Pharisees were not lacking in, it was persistency in prayer. They would pray at the drop of a hat so long as they had an audience. They were consistent and persistent offerers of prayer. But they utterly failed to comprehend the true purpose of prayer. Prayer really, brethren and sisters, is to plead the cause of righteousness. That is the purpose of prayer. It's not a self-centered thing. Prayer is to plead the cause of righteousness. But with the Pharisees, they were pleading the cause of and therefore they lacked a deep love of God because they were so filled with self and they lacked an awareness of their own desperate needs because they didn't see those needs and again the book of Proverbs reminds us of their situation in Proverbs 30 and verse 12 where it says there are a generation that are pure in their own eyes and yet is not washed from their filthy. So here was the Pharisee. And we read that the Pharisee stood in verse 11. And in view of the fact that the publican stood afar off as an act of humility and unworthiness, the words used here in verse 11 of the Pharisee indicate that he stood in a most prominent position where he might be both seen and heard. So the Pharisee hoped to be admired for his piety by men, not being concerned as how he stood in the eyes of Yahweh. There was a difference between the two men. And the word that dominates the Pharisee's prayer is the word I. It's the most prominent word in the Pharisee's prayer. It occurs five times. And notice also the high-handed familiarity that the Pharisee displays in addressing the great Creator. And his familiarity was based upon his false belief that his own personal righteousness would make God pleased to have such a righteous man worshipping him in this way. And when you look at that prayer, you'll find that the prayer of the Pharisees was based upon three considerations. Firstly, he considered himself to be more righteous than those classes of people whom he despised. Secondly, he believed himself to be morally pure. And thirdly, he believed that he adequately met all the demands that God made upon him. And the Lord reveals by implication that in each of those respects he was totally wrong in his assumptions. And he revealed that he was motivated only by pride. 
And the root of the Pharisees' pride was not merely self-delusion. It was the age-old folly of measuring his own standards of merit by the standards of other men. I thank thee that I am not as other men. That was his standard. Instead of measuring himself against the perfection, the glory, the majesty of the one whom he claimed to worship, and had he done that, he would have been abased to the earth instead of standing prominently to be seen and to be heard by all. And you know, brethren and sisters, this parable is reminding us that when we are praying, there is one thing and one only that has got to dominate our minds. And that is above all else, the perfect righteousness and holiness of the one whom we are approaching. And it is that understanding that will engender in us the contrite spirit that will make our prayers acceptable to the Father. And you'll notice too with his Pharisee that his prayer to God, erstwhile was a judgment upon others, but not upon himself. I thank thee that I'm not as other men, adulterers, fornicators, extortioners, and so on. I thank thee that I'm not like that. His prayer was a judgment upon other men, but not upon himself. And the publican does the very reverse. So we learn here that the Pharisee had formed an assessment of his own character. And it was wrong. Because he had not assessed his character in the light of the character of the one whom he claimed to worship and therefore he was the object of self-delusion. I thank thee that I am not as this publican. What does he say to God in verse 12? I fast twice in the week. What was the point of that? The law didn't require that. The law required a fast on only one day of the year, on the day of atonement. Very good. What's he doing? Worshipping God in a way that makes him prominent in the eyes of men. I give tithes of all that I possess. Again, not in accordance with the requirements of the law. The Pharisees had perverted the law by applying their own interpretation as to what it meant. And so we learn those things from the Pharisees' prayer that we should not do. We learn from the Pharisees' prayer things that will be self-destructive to our spiritual life. But then what do we find? In verse 13, the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes under heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. So the first thing we know about the publican is his approach to the Father. There was no arrogance in that man. There was no self-centred familiarity that he would address the Creator in the heavens as he might talk to his neighbour over the back fence. Prayer is something that has got to be looked upon very gravely and carefully, brethren and sisters, whether it be in the public area, arena of the ecclesia or the privacy and darkness of our own home. We cannot approach under this God with an easy familiarity and we will not do so when we constantly have in our minds the glorious standard of what he is and what we are by comparison. So the publican stood afar off because he felt unworthy to approach Yahweh in any bold or familiar manner. He sought an inconspicuous place where he might be observed by God but not by men. 
He wouldn't lift up his eyes to the heaven. So where did he look? He looked down toward the earth from whence he had come. And that very action in itself would have reminded him that he was a creature of the dust. He was too humiliated at the recognition of his own unworthiness and sinfulness in contrast to the righteousness of Yahweh. So he smote himself upon his breast, which was an action indicating extreme mental grief. That was his state of mind. And his prayer is brief. And yet it tells volumes. God be merciful to me a sinner. And that brief prayer contains the necessary ingredients for proper prayer. God, man, sin, and man's humility in recognizing God's willingness and ability to exercise grace toward repentant sinners. It's all there in those seven words. And the word merciful in itself tells us volume. Do you know that that is the word from which the Greek word for the mercy seat is derived? The word only occurs in one other passage, and that's in Hebrews 2 and verse 17, where it says that Christ gave himself to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. In other words, here, the publican was asking for more than simply mercy in the sense that we would use the word mercy. He was asking the Father to provide the means whereby he as a sinful man might become reconciled with God. The word relates more to reconciliation and oneness and unity rather than simply the exercise of mercy. Although, of course, obviously it means that too. And so therefore, the most awesome lesson to be learned from these two parables, surely, is that the most sinful of men and women, so long as they are humbly repentant and dedicated, encouraged to walking in the way of the truth, there is hope for them in the eyes of a God who delights to exercise mercy. And he utters those few words, God be merciful, to me a sinner. He had nothing to boast of before God. And he had nothing to offer God except one thing. He was poor and of a contrite spirit and he trembled at God's word as it says in Isaiah 66 and verse 2. And the Father has said, to this man will I look. And that is why the Lord concludes the parable with the words of verse 13 where he says, I tell you, I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. And the phrase, I tell you, is far more powerful than appears in our authorised version, really, although it's quite adequately translated. It's the same phrase as occurs in verse 8, but it really means, I am telling you this because I know. So it's a very emphatic word, I am telling you this because I know. This man, the publican, went down to his house justified. And we're reminded from this prayer, ever so briefly from this publican, that there is only one principle upon which men can become justified with God, and that is the principle of faith in the grace of God. 
But notice the Lord says, that man was justified rather than the other. One would be justified with God and one would not. And I want you to think about this, brethren and sisters, as we conclude this brief consideration of these two parables this morning. Why does the Lord say here, everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased? Think about it from this point of view. When the Pharisee left the temple and proceeded to his house, he would have done so with pride even more deeply ingrained into his character. Because instead of going away humiliated, he went away self-satisfied. He went away having prayed to God, so he thought, even more proud than he had been before. But the repentant publican left that temple strengthened in faith and more fully aware of the righteousness and grace of God. What incredible parables they are and how powerful they are to us when we consider the context in which Luke has recorded them, the content of those remarkable and fearful prophetic words of Luke chapter 17. And so therefore these two parables of Luke 18 are probably more powerful, they are more vital and important to the ecclesia of God today than they have been at any other age since the Lord ascended up to sit at the right hand of his Father. And what follows the parable? How sublime and how glorious, how utterly sublime that these two wonderful parables should be immediately followed by the account of the Lord's dealing with little children and his accompanying explanation to the effect that it will be only those who are of a childlike disposition, such as that persistent widow, and such as the publican in the second prayer, only those who are of a childlike disposition toward the Father will be fitted for that glorious eternal inheritance with the Lord Jesus Christ in the kingdom that is soon to be established upon the earth.